Peter's like, ah, oh, Jesus is going to give us the plan. At verse 31, look what it says. Jesus says, we are going to march into Jerusalem. And your general, I, will suffer many things. We are not going to get any help from our Jewish brothers or the elders. Even the chief priest and the Sadducees will not join us. They're confused, aren't they? One of us. Our government, the Sanhedrin, is corrupt and can be of no help to us. We are going it alone, and I will die in battle. Oh, think of Peter's perspective. This is who he put all his marbles in, the basket of Jesus Christ. And on this day, Jesus, it actually says, spoke plainly to his disciples. Just another way of saying it was he was very straightforward and very clear about the events that will soon transpire. And even though it was plain language, Peter still doesn't get it. Peter was not able to shake this understanding of Jesus as his general, as a military leader. So what does he do? He pulls, he literally pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. What a contradiction. He's, he's given his whole life to follow this man who had, he has proclaimed, proclaimed as the Son of God, the Messiah, this new leader, and he rebukes him. He wants to teach the teacher. So many of us are just like Peter. He says, sir, this is not a very good military strategy. You're not going to die. Don't say that. It's not good for our morale. We're going to be there with you and we'll fight to the end and we'll throw, our, throw out these godless Romans out of Israel. We'll ascend to the throne in place of Herod and we'll be at your this is a constant, not a constant, but it happens a few times in the New Testament. We'll be at your right hand. I'll be at your right hand, and someone else can be at your left hand, and we'll rule Palestine. That's what he wants to remind Jesus of that was the plan. It's fascinating to note that just before Jesus rebukes Peter, this is another one of those Jesus and his eye contact moments. Just before he responds to Peter's rebuke, Scripture says that he actually turns around and looks at his disciples. Why? Ooh, gives me shivers. I'm sure Peter says all this. Jesus turns around, looks at the disciples, maybe all of us, and you guys are all in this together, huh? It's like you did something wrong, and a parent or someone in a position of authority suddenly looks, and you know instantly that they have you figured out. Jesus is putting two and two together and realizes the disciples have put Peter up to this. For Jesus and the disciples, this is a very, very critical moment. Jesus has to dispel this errant view, this mistaken outlook from their minds and teach them the real meaning of his mission. And that's what we're here to to do today. What is the real mission of Jesus? What is the text really wanting to say to us this morning? So he rejects Peter outright, calling him what? He calls him Satan. If you are wanting this military power, if you are wanting this victory, 
Jesus calls you evil. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. What things do you have in your mind? Is it the things of God or is it the things of men? Jesus is actually up against a very dangerous adversary. And in the end, this adversary may even possess more power than he. We know it's not true. But the adversary is not Peter and it's not the Sanhedrin or Pontius Pilate or Rome. The adversary is not even Satan himself. He's not fighting against Satan. The powerful enemy of Jesus is our own nature, a sinful nature. He's fighting against our own sinful nature. To address the confusion, Jesus pulls his disciples together, brings them before a crowd, and in front of the crowd, he corrects the disciples' aspirations for privilege, for rank and power, and he gives them this simple little directive. What does he say? You must take up your cross and follow me. He doesn't say, you just, just follow me. I have the cross. You guys can help me with my cross. No. He actually says, you have to take up your cross. This morning, the question that I have for all of us, why must we take up our cross? I'm going to give you three reasons. First reason, we must take up our cross to remind us that we are not the center of the universe. That our suffering is part of our discipleship as Christians. Um, if you ever look at great leaders, it's common actually of these great leaders to make demands of their followers. Winston Churchill, you guys know Winston Churchill, right? You guys had European history, most of you hopefully. Winston, Winston Churchill, he became the prime minister, and he tells the British people this, that he had nothing to offer them but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. The Italian freedom fighter Garibaldi tells his followers that he offered them only hunger and death. Demanding leaders, but amazingly, people followed them. As demanding as they were, Jesus was and is a thousand times more demanding than they were. Jesus said, so therefore, whoever of you does not denounce or renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Possessions, the things that you value, maybe it's your car, your clothes, maybe it's your grades, maybe it's your friendships. These cannot stand between you and the Lord. Jesus went so far as to say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. Even something as noble as the love of family, as good and right as that is, cannot stand in the way of commitment to the kingdom of God. Laziness, fear, selfishness, family, nothing can stand between us and the call to discipleship. 
thousand times more demanding. Jesus Christ demands our obedience. Jesus is not, for those of you that maybe thought, ah, oh, Jesus with the sheep and Jesus with the children, let them come to me, is not some wishy-washy person coming up to us hoping to win our favor, softly saying, please follow me. May I have a word with you? I have something wonderful for you. Please, may I have some of your time? He comes to us as the Lord of history and makes his demand. And his demand is this. Take up your cross and follow me. For those of you that thought Christianity was a feel-good religion, those people that make that accusation don't know what true Christianity is. He comes to us as one to be obeyed. During the dark days of World War II, England... Winston Churchill, they had a great deal of difficulty actually keeping people in coal mines. Why were coal mines so important? They needed the coal to power their factories, to make all the war weapons, the war machinery. It was a thankless kind of job, totally lacking in any glory. And most of the people, what did they choose? They chose to actually go into the very various military services. Why? They desired something that could give them more social acceptance, some recognition, some adventure. But the coal mine? Mm. Something was needed to motivate these men in the work that they were doing so that they would actually stay and continue to work. They were, wanting, they were leaving. So with this in mind, and Winston Churchill knowing the need for this coal, he goes and he delivers a speech to thousands of coal miners, stressing to them the importance of their war, of their role in the war effort. And, and this is what he does. He actually paints this mental picture. You guys can kind of try to imagine it with me. He told them that the picture, or he told them to picture a grand parade that would take place when VE Day came. What is VE Day? Victory in Europe. When that day of victory came, there would be this grand parade. And first, he says, would come the sailors of the British Navy. Oh, the British Navy. You know, England is this island country. Navy, absolutely in invaluable and important. They would come first, and they would be the ones who upheld the grand tradition of Trafalgar and the defeat of the Armada and just all these things of history. Next in the parade, he said, he would, would, would be coming the pilots of the Royal Air Force. They were the ones who, more than any other, had saved England from the dreaded German Luftwaffe. Okay, if you guys want, some of you that want to catch up on this history stuff, it's fascinating. Next in the parade would come the army, the ones that had stood tall at the crisis of Dunkirk, right? The stand at Dunkirk. And last of all, Churchill says, would come a long line of sweat-stained Soot-streaked men in miners' caps, coal miners' caps. And someone, he said, would cry from the crowd, and where were you during the critical days of the struggle? And then, from 10,000 throats would come, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. We're told that there were tears in the eyes of many of those soot-laden and weather-faced coal miners. They had been given 
a sense of their own self-worth by the man at top. He's actually saying that they would come last. Why are they coming last in the parade? Because they were the most important. Without them, all of the other military branches would be meaningless. Service does not always come with big, fancy ribbons. Maybe some of you guys are thinking, you know, I want to be a pastor someday. I want to stand up there and do what Pastor Stephen, what Pastor Sonny, what Pastor Brian does. It seems quite glamorous. Pastor Stephen actually mentioned a few Sundays ago, the only reason why he does what he does is not because of any of that. It's only because of obedience. Trust me. My house, ever since I started working as a pastor again, Saturday, the weekend, it kind of gets shut down because I can't do the things I used to do or the things I want to do because I need to be doing the things I have to do. You may not know this, but getting up here each Sunday is nerve-wracking. I could have gone to the bathroom at home, not having really drinking anything, come here, music starts playing, Anthony gets up here, and you know where I'm headed? Straight to the bathroom. This isn't because it's fun. This is out of obedience. It's not fancy ribbons. And I think that it's forever true that it's often the humble acts of service that provide us with the deepest sense of joy and the most fulfilling satisfaction. Jesus said, those who are willing to lose their life for my sake shall find it. I'm persuaded that true discipleship is found in the coal mines with our cross upon our backs. Second point, we must take up our cross to remind us that there are others who suffer. Maybe you always thought Christianity is so much always just about me and me. And how do I feel? And how, what can I get out of it? No. To take up the cross is to know the suffering of others. In 1580, a Dutch Protestant leader named Klaus was arrested and condemned by the Catholic Church as a heretic. There was a lot of conflict between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Eventually, he was burned at the stake. When the tragedy was over, his dear wife took their small son by the hand, walked through the back streets of town to the hill where their loved one had perished as a Christian martyr, their father, her husband, at the place of execution, the bereaved widow gathers up some of the ashes, places them in her satchel, and she hung it around her boy's neck saying, and this is what she says, Son, I place these ashes on your heart and on the heart of every son of these Netherlands in all eternity. Whenever and wherever in this world there is an injustice or wrong committed, these ashes will beat on your heart and you will speak out without fear even at the fear of death. She doesn't say, take revenge. She doesn't say an injustice was done. She reminds even her son to look out for others who suffer injustice. All around us, there are wrongs that, must, that we must correct in your homes, in your schools, maybe out in public. The cross we take up is our reminder of that fact. It's a sad episode in the life of, of the church, but even we, Jesus' followers, we've been 
the perpetrators of some of the most horrific crimes in the name of Jesus. And we have done these crimes as well. Like Peter claiming that it was God's will. No one is outside the reach of sin. And thus, we must stay diligent and keep each other accountable. Though it may take time, if we keep carrying the cross, we may learn that others suffer as we do. And that sometimes even we ourselves are perpetrators of the hatred and violence which others suffer. I hear it all the times in the news of Christians having done terrible things. We take up our cross to remind us that others suffer and that we must be held accountable. Point three. We must take up our cross to remind us that the reality is we are responsible in part, maybe in whole, for the cross that Jesus carried. You guys know Rembrandt. Rembrandt painted this famous work of the crucifixion. It's actually called the Three Crosses. It hangs in the Louvre in Paris. And this is one of the rare paintings where a famous painting has a picture of himself. Among the faces in the crowd, beneath the cross, he painted himself into it. Why? That was his way of saying that he could not envision the crucifixion without admitting that he had a participation in it. Unfortunately, there are some who never see that. There are some who never realize that they are the reason why Jesus died on a cross. They say they identify with the Christ on the cross. They, they look at Jesus and say, ah, oh, he's there to save me. He's there to give me new life. Rather than identifying with the Rembrandt in the crowd as to be the reason. Do you see the subtle difference here? We want the result, but we don't understand the reason. There's an old Negro spiritual that has a refrain that goes something like this. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? It wasn't about Jesus being crucified. The emphasis is about us. It's about you. We were the ones crucifying him. If we were to be perfectly honest, we would have to answer, yes, I was there. Yes, I had a role in this. It is only as we come to that understanding that we can sing the last part of the hymn. Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Why? Because we're the reason. Some would respond by saying that happened in the past, that it has nothing to do with me, a couple thousand years ago, so foreign. It was an act committed by the pompous Romans. It was, a, it was the self-righteous Jews. I wasn't there. It wasn't me. And that's it. It's not me. And we refused to feel guilty for something I had nothing 
to do with. If that is the position that we take, then we are missing the point of Jesus' words, take up your cross and follow me. It's not the cross only for Jesus. Jesus does not simply want us to remember his cross as something he himself suffered on our behalf. If he did, he would have simply said, take my cross and follow me. Instead, he tells us to take up our own cross. For me, I think by that he meant that I must so identify with the event of the crucifixion as to see myself in the story. It's not simply his story. It is our story as well. I think that it is most tragic. What season are we in? We're in the season of Lent. And if we go through this entire Lenten season and never fully understand our role in the whole crucifixion drama, how tragic that would be. Why must we take up our cross? Let me remind you. It's to remind us that we must suffer, first for Christ's sake, that there are others in this world who suffer, and that ultimately we are responsible for the indignity and shame which Christ suffered upon the cross. We're the reason. We're the fault. But brothers and sisters, this morning, I want to point out something. Even in the midst of all of this, you have a choice. It's your choice. You can lay down the cross you have been given to bear and passively live your life with no challenges or you can take it up and be transformed. Living for something greater than yourself. You can choose to say no to the challenges of service, to the challenges of ministry, to the challenges of loving your neighbor. Or you can take up the cross and accept this cross that is given to you. The choice is yours. But my prayer, and I plead with you to take up your cross. Some of you are sitting there thinking, you know, my life is hard already as it is. Your life is hard because you're seeing only your life. My prayer is that you can see your life in the grandeur and in the eternity of God. Jesus had to cleanse the temple during this final Passover week. He actually cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, as we see in the book of John. And again, I encourage you to listen to Pastor Stephen's sermon on it. What does this tell us? That we are human. That we will sin again and again. Brothers and sisters, we cannot do it on our own. Amen? We cannot. You cannot. No matter how bright 
no matter how intelligent, no matter how good-looking or how much money your family may have or how self-reliant or independent you are, you cannot do it on your own. Take up your cross. Come and follow him. Let's pray.